Welcome, God Speak family. This is Pastor Rick standing in for Pastor Rob, who's on the road with Charlie Kirk, and I'm with them. An unusual weekend for all of us to be together, but we have a wonderful special guest for you we're going to introduce in just a moment. But uh, just a few things that we want to talk about. Next weekend, we are going to have a wonderful baptism, 9 o'clock, 11 o'clock, and 1 o'clock. Bring a change of clothes to change into, but wear clothes that you're comfortable in getting wet, and uh, it's going to be, we're going to make room in the service to do it during the service, and so we're not taking sign-ups, but the Bible says to repent and be baptized. If you've committed your heart to the Lord, you believe in Jesus with all your heart, whether you're young or you're old, this invitation is for you to come next weekend with a heart that's ready to follow the Lord in public baptism. Also, just want you to know know that um, we're praying this week for one of our uh, precious team members that you know and love so much. Um, Micah, our worship leader, and his wife Molly, she was in her second trimester, and uh, she lost the baby this week. And so uh, the Bible says to weep with those who weep and to rejoice with those who rejoice. And so Uh, We have shed some tears this week as we love on the people that uh, we care the most about. And I know you do. So please be praying for them. And uh, they have asked us to communicate with the body just to let you guys know. And it's easier sometimes to bring this out in a uh, congregational setting because otherwise sometimes you're telling one person at a time over and over. And it's very emotionally draining when you're going through something like this. And I just want you to know that the right now in everything the Lord is doing here at God Speak, that um, there's a tremendous spiritual warfare. Pastor Rob's out there just standing for the Lord and, and, and using his life and traveling with Charlie Kirk and everybody that's here is serving and we're making a stand for Jesus through a very difficult time. And sometimes the enemy comes in like a flood in the most unusual ways. So we need to be praying for the McCoy family and for Micah and uh, Molly and their children. So thank you so much. I know you guys love them so much and I know you are praying. So uh, I just want to reaffirm that. Hi, folks. Uh, I know that Pastor Rick just shared with you the news about Molly and Micah and our, our little baby boy uh, who's with the Lord. And, and I, I so appreciate what Rick's doing. I just wanted to take a minute to tell all of you I miss you. Uh, this, this season of busyness is coming to a close. We're pushing hard for November 3rd, the most critical election in our nation's history. And uh, when, we're, when we're all finished with our efforts, uh, I, I want to say that uh, we left it all on the field, so we're, we're pushing hard. And uh, today I'm in San Diego, as uh, Rick probably shared with you. But I'll be back with you soon. Your prayers are so appreciated. Our, our families, you know, we're hurting. But we're so blessed to be loved by all of you. I miss you all. And I'll see you soon. God bless you guys. And have a wonderful time with Pastor Ken Graves. I love that man. He's a lion. And so uh, God bless you all, and I'll see you soon. Bye, everybody. Just a a couple things before Pastor Ken comes up. Um, A new ministry is starting up. Uh, James and Kelly are starting a young adults ministry. The sign-ups are back there. They're having their kickoff. I believe it's this Tuesday. So if you're you're a young adult, um, please don't miss out on that great opportunity. And speaking of Rob's schedule, 
yesterday, he started in Chino, went to Temecula, then up to San Jose, and now in San Diego. So you can uh, keep him in prayer. And many of you were at the event he was at in Chino. It was uh, an essential, non-essential. It's called non-essential. It is essential that you are part participate with it. Um, here's a video, because I'm sure he'd want to know, he want you to know what he was uh, involved in yesterday. Our community, our families, and our Christian way of life are under attack. The government thinks those rights are non-essential. But is that reality? They came after these families in these small towns. How long do you think it will be before they come to yours? Or are they already there? Charlie Kirk, Kirk Cameron, Dinesh D'Souza, Sissy Graham Lynch, Pastor Jack Hibbs, Pastor Rob McCoy, Frontline Dr. Dan Erickson, and David Harris Jr. want you to join them as they examine the reality of our nation's current circumstances and share the one and only solution that quickly and simply solves the problems facing America. Featuring special music and worship from Danny Gokey. Don't miss this one-time event airing on October 18th at 5 p.m. Pacific, 8 p.m. Eastern. Go to nonessential.live and learn more about this free event. So that's airing at 5 p.m. this evening. I encourage you to participate by tuning in and telling as many people you know about it to watch. Pastor Ken is not a pastor that I need to introduce. We know him well. We always love hearing his heart. He's a man that loves the Lord and is going to share a wonderful word for us, with us uh, this morning. So put your feelings aside, and let's welcome uh, Pastor Ken. Well, it's the truth that uh, the just shall live by faith. By faith alone. Little ring, brothers. Join me this morning. If you need a Bible, hold your hand up, and the guys will bring you a Bible. We're going to be uh, looking at some scripture. I am a sound man's nightmare. <laughs> God help him. Go with me as you receive that Bible to the John the 12th chapter. John chapter 12. The scene is the Last Supper. We'll be here briefly in John chapter 12. John 12, verse 1. If you need a Bible, hold your hand up. They'll, they'll get it right to you. John chapter 12, verse 1 reads like this. Then Jesus, uh, six days before the Passover, came to Bethany where Lazarus was, which had been dead whom he raised from the dead. There they made him a supper, and Martha served, but Lazarus was one of them that sat at the table with him. Then took Mary a pound of ointment of spike, not very costly, and anointed the feet of Jesus, and wiped his feet with her hair. And the house was filled with the odor of the ointment, but then saith one of the disciples, Judas Iscariot, Simon's son, which should betray him, 
Why was not this ointment sold for 300 pence and given to the poor? This, he said, not that he cared for the poor, but because he was a thief and had the bag and bear what was put therein. Judas, consider this for just a moment. Judas apparently doesn't have a concept of ownership. Ownership is acknowledged by the very law of God. The law of God says, thou shalt not steal. Acknowledges that people own their stuff. Not only that, the law says, don't even covet someone else's stuff. Judas has no concept of ownership. Judas pretends to care about the poor. John writes, by the Holy Spirit, he doesn't care about the poor, but he's a thief and the treasurer. Judas pretends to be more concerned about the poor than God in human form who's receiving this gift. Judas was a Democrat. It's not our actual text. Go with me to Luke chapter 10. <laughs> but may I say, while you're turning to Luke chapter 10, you cannot be a Democrat and be a Christian. You can't anymore. How in the world can you call yourself a Christian while you support a party whose every single plank in their platform is in opposition to the law of God? It doesn't add up. It doesn't. I invite you, as a friend, to rethink it. To rethink it. You might have, you've been a lifelong Democrat. You've been like, I, but they are the party that sticks up on a little guy. Yeah, like Judas cared about the poor. Now rethink it, repent. <laughs> by, by the way, that's what repent means. The, the Greek word that we translate in our English Bible, repent. The Greek word is metanoia. Literally, change your mind. Change your mind. But here in Luke chapter 10, our actual text for this morning, Luke chapter 10, we're going to begin at verse 25. That was partly just for fun. <laughs> and partly not. <laughs> Luke 10, 25. And behold, a certain lawyer stood up tempting him, saying, Master, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? Even the question itself is actually kind of messed up because you can't do anything to inherit, right? However, he asked the question, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? He said unto him, verse 26, what is written in the law? How readest thou? And he answering said, Thou shalt love the Lord thy God with all thy heart, with all thy soul, with all thy strength, and with all thy mind, and thy neighbor as thyself. He said unto him, Thou hast answered right, this do, and thou shalt live. The lawyer summarized the commands of God. The lawyer summarized the law of God perfectly. Two commands. Both of them are commands to love, just as the cross itself that intersection of the vertical and the horizontal. What a fitting thing. 
that to satisfy the requirements of the law, the Son of God would die upon a cross. What a statement. That our duty vertical, our duty to God, our duty to the one who created us, and our horizontal duty to our fellow man. All of it summed up with love, just love. Love God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. Love your neighbor as yourself. This being a lawyer, verse 29. He willing to justify himself said unto Jesus, and who is my neighbor? Who is my neighbor? Who exactly are you implying that I'm supposed to love as myself? Who is my neighbor? His assumption is that neighbor is going to be, cho- it's going to be determined by proximity, geography, ethnicity, or something else. But it's none of that. So in, in order to answer his question, the Lord tells him a story. Grateful for this story, recorded only for us here in Luke. Verse 30, Jesus answering said, A certain man went down from Jerusalem to Jericho and fell among thieves, which stripped him of his raiment, wounded him, and departed, leaving him half dead. Certain man. So this particular rabbi answering a Jewish lawyer's question gives us a story of a Jewish man. Everybody in the story is, in fact, a Jew, except for the one character who is identified as a non-Jew, the Samaritan. He tells us, traveling as he was alone, and that's when we're vulnerable, he fell among thieves on that road to Jericho. They did three things. They stripped him, they wounded him, and they left him. He was stripped, wounded, and left. In that order, no doubt, they want to wound him and then get blood on the garments they're trying to steal. Garments were kind of a big deal before the Industrial Revolution. Before the Industrial Age, garments were hard to come by. They were were all handmade. They took his covering and left him. Naked. And then they wounded him. And then they left him. But the Lord Jesus uses a term in verse 30, which is interesting. The thieves left him half dead. Half dead. There is no way you can put a positive spin on that and go, well, at least he's half alive. You know, cup half empty, half full thing. There's no way to do the Caleb, positive and encouraging thing with the fact that the guy's half dead. He's half dead. That's what the Lord says. Half dead, not half alive. Now the question is, what is going to make that guy go from half dead to five-eighths dead to three-quarter dead to seven-eighths dead? That's the smaller fractions as I deal with. I'm not a machinist. To eight-eighths all the way dead. What is going to take him from half dead to fully dead? Well, there's a number of things, I suppose. We don't know exactly where or how severe was the wound. He could bleed himself to death. That's possible. Probably laying there, incapacitated and naked, the elements could finish him off. The heat of the day, the cold of the night. But you know what the the biggest threat to our victim is? here is. You know what it is. And it is the very thing that a hero finally comes along and addresses. It's infection. Infection. 
There's no doubt that the thieves who wounded him didn't exactly sterilize the tool with which they wounded him. They not only wounded him, but they introduced into his system something that could ultimately kill him slower than the wound itself. Isn't it an amazing thing to consider that all the way from the introduction of sin and with it death by sin, all the way from Eden up until the early 1860s, nobody knew what was the invisible killer. They didn't know about microbes. They didn't know that there were little tiny creatures so small that you couldn't see them with your naked eye. And those who were telling the world of their existence Scientists like Dr. Joseph Lister or Louis Pasteur were mocked and persecuted. They seemed like madmen who were talking about little fairies or, you know, little spirits. You know, the tiny little animals that you couldn't see with the naked eye. And long before the development of the microscope and the ability to actually see them magnified, those brave men took a stand telling people that they existed, they were persecuted. Some of them even uh, ended their lives in insane asylums rather than being praised as heroes. Now think about that. Though they did not know what was the difference between clean and unclean, a biblical concept, clean versus unclean, what they did discover, they had discovered by trial and error, is that wounds that were cleansed with alcohol healed better. Wounds that were cleansed with alcohol did not fester and did not get infected and spread and kill. This much they do know. So the man in our story, according to the Lord, was left half dead. (laughs) Verse 31 says, and by chance there came down a certain priest that way. And when he saw him, he passed by on the other side. And likewise, a Levite, when he was at the place, came and looked on him and passed by on the other side. Both of those religious men committed the same verb, that third verb that the thieves had committed. They stripped him, they wounded him, and they left him. And religion did the same, left him. They committed ultimately the same crime against this victim that the thieves had done. Everybody here has been wronged. Everybody here has been victimized. In our lives and on our journey, we have all of us been wounded. To some degree or another, we've been stripped, wounded, and left. Some were left by a first love, a first husband, a first wife, Some were victimized by adults when you were small and vulnerable in a variety of ways. Some wounded by our own culture, our peers. Wounds happen. Some heal. Others only fester, and sometimes they'll fester for a lifetime because they never get disinfected. And the reality is that in a room this size, I can also guarantee that not only have you been wounded, victimized, that you also had a hope and expectation 
that religion would offer you something, but instead it just further victimized you. Some of you were once children, subjected to the prying questions of a man in private who's trying to get your sins out of you, and that is traumatic. Others were victimized one way or the other by Sunday school workers. They, they have a tendency, because generally speaking, Christians are loving and they you know, love, hopes all things, believes all things, bears all things. Christians can be notoriously naive. And the wolves creep in among them when they're looking for access to the children. When that's true, it's uh, frighteningly true. Unless there is, in fact, spiritual leadership that is vigilant and knows who everybody is on the crew and what they're doing, and take this business of keeping the little ones safe. Little ones are victimized in religious circles all the time. Well, here we have a victim who has been victimized by thieves and victimized further by religion. Verse 33 says, but a certain Samaritan, as he journeyed, came where he was, and when he saw him, he had compassion on him. <laughs> now, friends, I'm going to do what I can to not go on a rant. No promises. Uh, I have a tendency to rant about one of the things that is most disturbing about modern culture. Modern culture puts the highest value on human emotion. And they treat it like it's the only thing you can actually count on. What a lie. That human feelings, that emotion and perception are all that really matter. Right now, the entire, that whole Frankfurt School, the entire critical theory and critical race theory says, stop talking about facts. Don't give us facts. Don't give us actual history. No, no, no. The only thing that really matters is the experience of the oppressed. All that really matters is how you feel. Do you feel oppressed? Then you are. And if you might feel that though you are a biological male, you're a female trapped in a male's body, well, that feeling is all that matters. And rather than helping people sort out the crazy feelings, they encourage them to follow those feelings, and they're going after our children. Oh, what, what a wicked crime that invites the judgment of God for a public education system to encourage every single child to just obey lust and obey their feelings. And they're the only thing that's real. But even in Christian circles, oh, let me tell you, in Christian circles, it's no different. There are far too many Christians who believe that they've got to follow their feelings. And if they don't, they're a hypocrite. If they're not being real. I can't be fake. I just, I can't be fake. I have to be real. <laughs> and they act like their obligation to their feelings is greater than their obligation to God. Like the only thing that speaks ex-cathedra with authority rather than it being the word of God is their feelings. They can't even start a sentence without saying, I feel like. (laughs) 
I, I, feel, I feel like that's true. I feel like, I feel like, I feel like you're mocking me right now. No, that's not a feeling, that's a reality. I'm mocking you, if that's you. That's not a feeling. It's actually happening. I feel like, I just, I feel, and then it'll drag it into their spiritual life and they'll go, I just, I feel such a healing. I just feel, I feel like the Lord's here. I believe the Lord has led me to this church. How do you know that? I just feel it. I feel it. And they'll feel their way right into church and feel their way right out of church as soon as their feelings get hurt. People feel their way into marriages and nobody even wonders why they don't last. You feel your way in and you'll jolly well feel your way out. Feelings are not reliable, and the just don't live by them. The just live by faith alone. What is faith? Faith is our acceptance. It is our heart's response to the word, to the revelation of God. And it, faith, will contradict our feelings. But the new sentiment is, and this is the whole new philosophy of modern culture, is whatever you feel, you've just got to be true to that. I say to you, that's a lie from hell. If everybody does just what they feel, we will all suffer. And none of us will do the will of God. Is it, hip, is it hypocrisy? Is it being a hypocrite to not choke someone though you feel like it? <laughs> no. <laughs> it's not being a hypocrite. Imagine that. Somebody going, I just, I had to. I had to choke them. Or I'm, I'm like a total hypocrite. I don't want to be fake. I'm sorry. I, I mean, I, I got to be true to myself and my feelings. feelings. When we come to verse 33, we read that a certain Samaritan, as he journeyed, came where he was, and when he saw him, he had compassion on him. We immediately go, oh, he felt something. He went, oh, look at that. Oh, just look, there's a guy in need. Now, I I submit to you that, that in reality, in a real story, a man on a journey like the Samaritan is, who has an agenda, he's got business to attend to. He's going somewhere when he encounters a victim. And right then, if it's you or me, there's a tug of war. There's this, oh, I can't leave him there. But I, got, but I can't leave him there. But what about my, oh, forget it. My agenda's messed up. Forget it. I can't leave him there. I can't. He may not have felt anything, but he had Compassion. Compassion is something you have. It's not something you feel. He didn't just feel his way over to the ditch where the poor guy was. I do mock feelings a lot. I should let you know that I have them, and they're you know they're they're real, but they're not they're not relevant. Well, the story goes on. He had compassion on him. Verse 34 says, he went to him and bound up his wounds, pouring in oil and wine. Set him on his own beast. Brought him to an end, took care of him. He went to him. He did what the others did not do. The priest did not go to him. The Levite looked upon him, but went by on the other side of the road. He actually went to him. He went to him. He went where he was. That's step one. Go where they are. 
involved yourself. And he did. He did something, though. I want to point this out to you, if I may, this morning. He poured in wine. It wasn't in this order. He poured in wine first. Why? Why did he pour in wine? Because those wounds must be cleansed, or that man, his infection would be the ultimate thing that killed him. And when he poured in wine, then you know he stung the man he was there to help. You know that, right? You know the burn of the alcohol would probably initially cause our victim to go, what kind of friend are you? What kind of help is this? But faithful are the wounds of a friend. Modern culture and modern preacher culture is way too reluctant to sting. Don't you be reluctant to sting. You've got to indict people and let them know they're on their way to hell before you can ever soothe that with the oil of the gospel. You understand, before we can ever deliver the good news, you've got to deliver the bad news as the backdrop. My friend, you will never be good enough to go to heaven, ever. You will never love God perfectly. You haven't, and you haven't loved your neighbor as yourself perfectly. You're doomed. There's no amount of good works that will get you to heaven. No, there is not some kind of a ladder. You climb one good deed at a time. That's a lie from hell. That is a perversion of the vision that God gave to the patriarch Jacob. He saw a connection from heaven to earth. Angels ascending and descending upon it. Not people ascending and descending. He saw a connection between heaven and earth. And angels, heaven was doing business with earth. Angels ascending and descending. That has been perverted by religious tradition into Jacob's ladder. Jacob's ladder just climbing one good deed at a time. And there is in the mind of many people this sort of invisible set of scales. And that what really matters is that, you know, it, it, on one side of the scales, all of our sins go. They're a matter of record. And on the other side of the scale, all of our good deeds go. And the important thing is that the scales tip on the side of our being more good than bad. And that that's how we're judged at the end of life. That's a lie from hell. It's a lie. How many, how many sins does it take to, to tip the scales permanently? One. It's not like you could just do a whole bunch of good deeds. The mind of the average guy you and I do business with. And we're the ones that have to sting them and tell them. We're not saved by works. Impossible to be saved. Think about that for a second. What a difference a preposition makes. Like death from COVID versus death with COVID. <laughs> a preposition makes a big difference. It annoys me to no end that they just keep on throwing that number up there. And it's a lie. And everybody ought to know it. 210,000 Americans dead. It's a lie. It is a lie. We, we actually, sadly, experienced the first great white shark attack death up in Maine on, on, on our coast. First one since the 1700s. But the lady was up there to get away from COVID in New Jersey. Another COVID shark attack. The games that are being played. Preposition makes a big difference. We are not saved by works. Ephesians chapter 2. We are saved 
before good works, which God has before ordained that we should walk in them. But we have to deliver the sad news that our friends can never earn their way to heaven. <laughs> they get offended. And they're like, I don't think I'm any worse than anyone else. And you go, well, no, no, nobody said you were worse. See, that's your problem. You don't understand. Compared to God, we're all of us imperfect. All of us are criminals in God's universe. Every one of us are sinners. And our sins must be remitted or they'll drag us to hell. You got to sting people. Ladies and gentlemen, you got to tell them the truth that they may or may not want to hear. You must sting. But that's not all we do. We don't just go around stinging. You pour in the wine, it burns. But you follow it up with the oil that soothes and seals the good news of the gospel, the good news of a God who became human, put on flesh, lived among us, lived a sinless life, died a sacrificial death, rose from the dead. As the way, he is the way. He's not just showing us a way. He is the way, the only way to eternal life. Now that, that's good news. That is, that is gospel. And that soothes the very same soul you sting. You soothe with that news. Here in this story, a certain Samaritan, he went to our Jewish victim, he bound up his wounds, pouring in oil and wine. He sent him upon his own beast, and he took him to an inn. Because, you see, Herod had not deemed the inns to be non-essential. <laughs> so, so there was an inn to take him to. Now the question is, why didn't he take him to a hospital? Well, because hospitals hadn't been invented by Christians yet. In case you don't know your history, it was Christian monks who started the very first hospitals on earth. Now, what you think about all of the millenniums of human history that passed, there was no hospital. They did not exist. But when they didn't have hospitals, they had hospitality, the inn. He can't leave your victim, even bandaged, even his wounds bound up. You can't leave him there on the side of the road. You have to take him somewhere. And the inn is a safe place where he can continue his healing. He's sheltered from the elements. There are walls to keep him from being further victimized. But you know what makes the inn? The inn? The host. Verse 34 says he brought him to an inn and took care of him. Everything that the Samaritan was doing for that man was summarized by those words, he took care. Verse 35 says, and on the morrow when he departed, he took out two pens, gave them to the host. So now we're introduced to another character in our story. We had this certain man, then we had the thieves, and then we had the religious guy, the priest and the Levite. Then the Samaritan. And now another character is introduced by the Son of God, and that is the host of the inn. The host is someone that our hero, the Samaritan, can trust. There's a trust relationship. He took out two pence. 
He gave them to the host, and he said unto him, Take care of him. Do what I have done for him. Take care of him. And whatsoever thou spendest more, when I come again, I will repay thee. Of course, the Lord Jesus ended that story with a question for the lawyer. Which now of these three, thinkest thou, was neighbor unto him who fell among thieves? And he said, verse 37, he that showed mercy on him. And then said Jesus unto him, go and do thou likewise. Go do thou likewise. Go show mercy. Brothers and sisters, I share this parable with you today to get you to understand that all of us who have all been victimized are all still on our journey. We've all been wounded. Some of those wounds have healed. And now we have scars. I like scars. Scars are cool. Every time I see a scar, I want to know the story. As soon as I arrived, I arrived here yesterday, I run into James. He's got a new scar and a story. <laughs> it looks suspiciously like a spinning back fist from a Kelly. <laughs> but love covers. It's appropriate. Got a story about a horse and all that. But I see a scar, and I have to ask the story. What was the story? After the first service, one of your brothers came up to me. He had a collection of scars, bullet scars and knife scars from a very violent and troubled youth. And that was cool. <laughs> scars tell where you've been. But scars are healed, and that fabric is tougher than the original fabric. I have a collection of scars myself. They tell the story. They tell where I've been. Wounds are different. They continue to fester, and they just won't heal. And they become the most dangerous point of entry to what infects. Part of my motivation for laying this story on you today and for going over this is to point out to you that all of us have been wounded. Some of us have healed up from those, and we have scars that tell where we've been, and they're important. Others of us here today are still wishing for those wounds to heal, but they're not. The infection that prevents that healing is bitterness and unforgiveness. And the problem with bitterness and unforgiveness is that far too many modern church folk wrongly think that forgiveness is a feeling. It's that feeling thing once again. They believe because they still get all this negative emotion that they haven't forgiven and can't, and they keep praying for forgiveness, and they keep waiting for a warm fuzzy to the one that wronged them. You know what I'm talking about, right? And then warm fuzzy never comes. I'm here to tell you today, you cannot feel your way into right living, but you can live your way into right feeling. Stop trusting your feelings. On the subject of forgiveness, the Lord Jesus, on the subject of even loving our enemies, when he says... Love your enemies. He doesn't 
ever talk about emotion toward our enemies. He speaks of our actions toward our enemies. He says, bless those who curse you. Modern culture has abandoned the concept of blessing and cursing. We don't even know what it is. In fact, we think blessing someone is going, God bless you. It's not a blessing. It's like the lamest blessing in the world. A real blessing, like a curse. What is a curse? Curse you. I curse your name. That's a terrible curse. The ancients would mock at a lame curse like that. They would get creative, and they would talk about the, the evil they would wish upon someone. May the fleas of a thousand camels invade your underwear. They, they, could, they could get creative. The closest thing to a modern curse is usually being committed by a mom of a teenage daughter. When she says, I hope you have one just like you. <laughs> Now, that is a curse, <laughs> and it happens. It, it, it sets things into motion. According to New Testament teaching, we're not supposed to get good at cursing because we aren't supposed to do it at all. People may be cursing us, but the Lord Jesus taught us, bless them right back. You receive the curse, and you go, oh, Yeah. Well, may God open your eyes and change your mind and do you good. And may God keep you from the hell that you're heading for. Right? That's a blessing. But think about that for a second. The Lord says, bless. That's a verb. That's an action. He says, do good to those who mistreat you. Do good to the exact opposite of what they do to you. He said, if you see your enemy hungry, feed him. If you see your enemy thirsty, give him a drink. You find ways to meet the need of your enemies. You do, it's not feel anything. You do. <laughs> Somebody would say, but, but I don't feel like it. I'll tell you right now what the son of God would say to you. He'd say, do it anyway, because I told you to. He would say, if you love me, keep my commands. Yeah, but aren't I being fake? That's the new thing, right? I've just got to be real. I've just got to be true to my feelings. No, you need to be true to God. You might very well feel like punching someone in the face. Are you being a hypocrite to not? No, you're actually being a Christian. He says, do. You don't say anything about feeling. Somebody's going to say to me, yeah, no, he said, he said, if God will not forgive you, if you do not forgive from the heart. When he says from the heart, he's not talking about from your silly, fickle emotion. He's talking about a deeper place, a much deeper place than our feelings, than the seat of our feelings from the heart. I'm sharing this with you because there are many wounds, and I suspect that there are wounds here that have not yet turned to scars. Some of them you've been bearing for decades. 
because you're waiting for an emotion. I'm here to tell you today, stop that. Stop waiting and actually do, by God's grace, by the power of his Holy Spirit, what he told you to do. And you need to actually allow, and, and maybe that's going to sting. Maybe I'm stinging you right now. Let it sting. You got to forgive. It, it's good for you. You're obligated to forgive. You got to cancel debts. You've got to actually do what the Lord says toward your enemy, to the ones that have wronged you. Do it and be cleansed and be healed. I also share this with you today because I want to point out to you that there has to be an end where all of us Samaritans on our journey, we encounter people that we need to sting and soothe. We need to bind and bear them. But ultimately, have some place to take them. I submit to you, dear brothers and sisters, Calvary Chapel Godspeak is one of those very essential hospitals for the soul. One of those very essential places where people can come and heal and not be further victimized. Why? Well, because you got a trustworthy host. You got a senior pastor named Rob McCoy, you can count on. You got a staff that work under him. And I can assure you that under that kind of leadership, an environment is created and maintained where people can receive the word where they can actually receive the ministry of the Holy Spirit, where the oil and wine are continually being poured in. I believe that. I believe it sincerely. I believe that there's a necessary trust that you can and should have. Who is our neighbor is not determined by anything except our actions toward them. Who is our neighbor is not determined by ethnicity or geography, proximity, or any of those things. Who is our neighbor is determined by our actions toward them. I believe there's some business that we ought to take care of. Would you be willing to admit that you've got bitterness in your heart that has to be dealt with? And that you've, you need to obey the Lord and just do good toward your enemy. Would you be willing to allow us to pray for you at the close of this study this morning? If Michelle and the, and the, the ladies were there, would, well, there's one little man too. Would you guys all come back up here and get in your place where you can provide a song that we can go out and sing. We can go out of here singing that song. Let me ask you this question. Is God dealing with your heart? Are you convicted? Because you've been waiting for years for some kind of Holy Spirit emotion. And today, you're being convicted because you know you've got to forgive. You've got to cancel a debt. I had an enemy once that wronged me so greatly that I actually wanted to beat him to death. I had an enemy once. He was the first husband of the woman that I married. I already had a case against him before I ever met him. For all of the abuse and everything that he put her through. I married a woman right out of this church. 
36 years ago. She was living in Simi Valley, trying to get her life together after all of the pain of a failed first marriage and, and all of her attempts to forgive him and keep trying and second chances and third chances. Her life put in peril a number of times by him holding a gun to her head and threatening to kill her right in front of their little boy. See, I already wanted to wring his neck before I ever laid eyes on him. And I can tell you that when I finally met him, he gave me additional reasons. <laughs> a, a, a fire already ignited, a rage, just kept being fueled by every deed, every dirty trick. I tell you this, by the time I was 24 years old, I'm a young pastor with a new marriage and a little baby daughter and a stepson starting a church. The state of my nativity up in Maine, I was framed for a crime. This guy actually took his own child on a visit and drugged that kid, hired one of the makeup artists from one of the studios to come in and paint him up badly beaten. He took photographs that if you were me and you saw those photographs, you couldn't tell that they were fake bruises. And we didn't have the benefit of knowing that they were just painted on. Oh, the rage in my soul when I saw those pictures and, and we had no idea how the, who beat him, who did this to the kid. Oh, he submitted all of that to a civil court, making the case that I was a child abuser. No, his intention was for me to go to jail. Ministry completely destroyed. That was his plan. I won't give you the whole story. It takes some time, but all said and done, I, I had at one point a plan. I said, Lord, I'm going to, I need to go to California. I'm going to buy a one-way ticket. I'm going to go to California. I'm going to beat him to death. And then I'll do my time. And that'll be me loving my wife as Christ to love the church. <laughs> what do you say? And the Lord said, no. He shot my plan down. The Lord told me, leave that with him and he'd take care of it. He took care of it. That guy went to jail for what he attempted to do to me, and we went to Disneyland, and he paid for it. <laughs> oh, yeah. But the story didn't end there. I still have business with that man. I'm the stepfather of his little boy. I've got to supervise their reconnection. When he finally gets out of jail, I can tell you that by faith, I had to disobey Many urges. I had to disobey the temptation to take vengeance. I had to pray, and I had to pray for him out loud, and I had to do good toward him. I remember the first time putting my hand out and offering it, offering it, and, and offering it with a warning. Don't mess with me. Don't mess with my family. I'm going to give you a chance. And we shook hands. I can tell you that years passed. It took years, years. But eventually, my enemy became my friend. My enemy, the, the day came when I had gone to a pastor's conference down at Marietta. My stepson, now an adult living in San Diego, I went to pick him up. 
I want to take him to church before the conference started. His dad answered the door, my old enemy. And the fire has long been put out. It's been put out by every gesture and every action, every spoken word, trying to win that man, trying to win his uh, heart to the gospel. When I saw him, I shook his hand and was glad to see him. And I said, wait a minute, Tom, how long has it been since you've been to church? And he said, oh, it's been years. I said, come with us. He lit up and he was glad to come. We went to the church there in San Diego and the pastor saw me there and kind of made a big deal about the fact that I was in church. And he's like, if you would have told me, I'd have you preach tonight. And, and I, I go, That's, I just want to come to church, man. Can I introduce my friend? When I said the word friend, I saw how that word affected Tom. I saw him look at me and then put his hand out to shake the hand of that pastor. And I, that was actually the first time that I actually felt it. I actually, actually did feel it. You are my friend, Tom. And before cancer took him, I can tell you that I, I told Tom, Tom Haggerty, you have been a friend to me in these last two decades, despite all that stuff from way back. I want you to know dying, that you're dying as my friend. And he was moved by that. How did that happen? How did that happen? Well, I'll tell you what, didn't, I didn't get zapped with some kind of feeling from heaven. One act of obedience at a time. Do any of you need prayer this morning? Would you let us pray for you? How many of you in your heart right now would admit that there is bitterness, there is an infection of bitterness that's been haunting you for years, and you've been waiting for God to take it away, and he's not taking it away. He's calling you to action. Are there any of you here this morning who would say, I have got bitterness and I need you to pray for me that I will just do what God has called me to do. If that's you, please stand up so we can pray for you. Don't be timid. Don't be reluctant. We've all had to deal with it. Maybe the person that has burned you is still burning you. You got an even greater challenge. Anybody else want to be honest enough to go, me too? I got it. It's in me. I got that infection. I want to be healed of it. All right, we're going to pray that God will give you the grace to take the action that you know you have to take. And you need to start praying out loud for them. And don't pray that God will break their teeth and fill their mouth with gravel. You've got to actually pray that God will open their eyes and change their mind and save them from the destination that they're heading for. Okay, brothers and sisters all sitting, you see these people who are standing near you? Let's stand together with them and reach over and lay hands on their shoulders as they can then know that they are part of the family. No leaning on them. Don't slap them on the forehead. Nobody's, nobody's going to get pushed backwards. But we want to pray for them. Let me lead that prayer. Father, you see our brothers and sisters who've stood today. You know the story behind their standing. You know the wrong that has been done or is being done. We pray for them that you would empower them by the Holy Spirit to obey the word of God. We pray that you would help them, Lord, to recognize the just live by faith and in the application of that in this issue calls them 
to do what you've told them to do toward their enemy. God, I pray, give them the grace, give them the faith to believe that this is your will. Open their eyes to see what they must do. Empower them to do that from this time forward, that they would cleanse their own heart. For every bit as much as we need forgiveness from you, we need to forgive those who have wronged us. Help them, Lord. And may they never be the same. May they today stop waiting for an emotion to come from heaven and help them to take action on the words that came texted from heaven. Give them the grace to do it and find peace in the holy name of the one who died for all of our sins, who canceled our great debt. In his name we pray, amen. Amen, so be it.